Chapter Two of the Ashiel Mystery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit www.librivox.org. Recording by Garth Comira. The Ashiel Mystery by Mrs. Charles Bryce. Chapter Two. One hot summer day, a few months after the marriage, Juliet returning to the consulate after a morning spent in very active exercise upon a tennis court, was met on the doorstep by Dora, the youngest of the Clarency butchers, who was awaiting her approach in a high state of excitement. "'Hurry up, Juliet,' she cried, as soon as she could make herself heard. "'You'll never guess what there is for you. Something you don't often get.' "'What is it?' said Juliet, coming up the steps. "'Guess!' "'A present?' No, at least I suppose not, but there may be one inside. Inside? Oh, then it's a parcel, asked Juliet good-humouredly. She felt a mild curiosity, tempered by the knowledge that many things provide a thrill for the ten-year-old Dora, which she, from the advanced age of twenty-three, could not look upon as particularly exciting. No, not a parcel, cried Dora, dancing around her. It's a letter. "'There, now!' "'Then why do you say it's something I don't often get?' asked Juliet suspiciously. "'I often get letters. "'It's an invitation to the Gertignier's dance, I expect.' "'No, no, it isn't. It's a letter from England. "'You don't often get one from there, now, do you? "'You never did before since we've been here. "'I always examine your letters, you know,' said Dora, "'to see if they look as if they came from young men. "'So does Margaret.' We think it's time you got engaged. Margaret was the next sister. It's very good of you to take such an interest in my fate, Juliet replied, as she pulled off her gloves and went to the side table for the letter. As a matter of fact, she was a good deal excited now, for what the child said was true enough. She might even have gone further, and said that she had never had a letter from England, except while Sir Arthur was there on leave. It was a large envelope addressed in a clerk's handwriting, and she came to the conclusion, as she tore it open, that it must be an advertisement from some shop. Dear Madam, we shall esteem it a favor if you can make it convenient to call upon us one day next week, upon a matter of business connected with a member of your family. It is impossible to give you further details in a letter, but if you will grant us the interview we venture to ask— we may go so far as to say that there appears to us to be a reasonable probability of the result being of advantage to yourself, trusting that you will let us have an immediate reply, in which you will kindly name the day and hour when we may expect to see you. We are, yours faithfully, Findlay and Ince, solicitors. The address was a street in Holborn. Juliet read the letter through, and straightway read it through again with a beating heart. What did it mean? Was it possible she was going to find her own family, at last? She was recalled to the present by the voice of Dora, whom she now perceived to be reading the letter over her shoulder with unblushing interest. Say, said Dora, isn't it exciting? Something to your advantage. Just what they put in the agony column when they leave you a fortune. I bet your long-lost uncle in the West has kicked the bucket and left you all his ill-gotten gains. Mark my words, you'll come back from England a lovely heiress. I do wish the others would come in. 
There's no one in the house except Sir Arthur. Where is he? said Juliet, putting the sheet of paper back into the envelope and slipping it under her waistband. You know, Dora, it's not at all nice to read other people's letters. I wonder you aren't ashamed of yourself. I'm surprised at you. I shouldn't have read it if you had been quicker about telling me what was in it, retorted Dora. It's not at all a nice thing to put temptation in the way of a little girl like me. Do you suppose I'm made of cast iron? She departed with an injured air, and Juliet went to look for the counsel. "'What is it?' he asked, as she put the envelope into his hand. "'A letter you want me to read? Not a proposal, huh?' He smiled at her as he unfolded the large sheet of office paper. "'Hello. What's this?' He read it through carefully. "'Why, Juliet,' he said, when he had finished, "'this is very interesting, isn't it?' It looks as if you were going to find out something about yourself, doesn't it? After all these years. Well, well. You think I must go, then? She said, a little doubtfully. Go? Of course I should go if I were you. Why not? You don't think it's a hoax? No, no. I see no reason to suppose such a thing. I know the firm of Findlay and Ince quite well, by name and reputation. "'Oh, I hope they will tell me who I am,' cried Juliet. "'Have you no idea at all, father?' "'No, my dear, you know I have not. "'Besides, I promised Lena I would never ask. "'You are the child of a friend of hers. "'That is all I know. "'I think she scarcely realized how hard it would be for you "'not to know more when you grew up. "'I often think that if she had lived, "'she would have told you before now. "'If you promised her not to ask,' I won't ask either, said Juliet loyally, but I hope they'll tell me. It will be different, won't it, if they tell me without my asking? I think you might ask, said Sir Arthur. It is absurd that you should be bound by a promise that I made. And you may be sure of one thing. Your asking or your not asking won't make any odds to Findlay and Ince. If they mean to tell you, they will. And if they don't, you're not likely to get it out of them. "'And when shall I go?' cried Juliet. "'They say they want me to answer immediately, you know.' "'Oh, well, I don't know. In a few days. "'You will hardly be ready to start tomorrow, will you?' "'I could be ready easily,' said Juliet. "'You're in a great hurry to get away from us,' said Sir Arthur, with a rather uneasy laugh. "'Not from you,' Juliet put her arm through his. "'I could never find another father half as nice as the one I've got.' but you could do very well without so many daughters, you know. She smiled at him mockingly. You're like the old woman who lived in a shoe. You ought to set up a school for young ladies. I don't believe I shall be able to get on without my eldest daughter, he replied, half serious. Still, I think it would be better for you if your real parents have decided to own up to you. At all events, if they do not turn out desirable, I shall still be here, I hope. So I don't see how you can lose anything by taking the chance of finding out what you can about them. At this point Lady Byrne came into the room, and the news had to be retold for her benefit. The letter was produced again, and she joined heartily in the excitement it had caused. You had better start on Monday, she said to Juliet. That will give you two days to pack and to write to a hotel for rooms. Are you going to take her, Arthur? she added, turning to her husband. 
I would like a shot, he replied, but I can't possibly get away next week. I've got a lot of work on hand just now. I suppose, my dear, he suggested doubtfully, that you wouldn't be able to run over with her. Lady Byrne declared that it was impossible for her to do so. She had engagements, she said, for every day of the following week, which it was out of the question to break. Had Sir Arthur forgotten that they themselves were having large dinner parties on Tuesday and Friday? What she would do without Juliet to help her in preparing for them she did not know, but at least it was obvious that someone must be there to receive his guests. No, Juliet would have to go alone. She was really old enough to be trusted by herself for three days, and there was no need that she could see for her to be away any longer. She can go on Monday, see the lawyers on Tuesday, and come back on Wednesday, said Lady Byrne. The helplessness of young girls is the one thing I disapprove of in your European system of education. It is much better that they should learn to manage their own affairs, and Juliet is not such a ninny as you seem to think. I shall be perfectly all right by myself, Juliet protested. Sir Arthur did not like it. Supposing she is detained in London, he said. What should detain her, demanded his wife, unless it is the discovery of her parents? And if she finds them, I presume they will be capable of looking after her. In any case, she can write her cable to us when she has seen the solicitors, and it is no use providing for contingencies that will probably never arise. So it was at last decided. A letter was written and dispatched to Messrs. Findlay and Ince, saying that Miss Byrne would have pleasure in calling upon them at twelve o'clock on the following Tuesday, and Juliet busied herself in preparations for her journey. On Monday morning she left Ostend, in the company of her maid. It was a glorious August day. On shore the heat was intense, and it was a relief to get out of the stifling carriages of the crowded boat train and to breathe the gentle air from the sea that met them as they crossed the gangway onto the steamer. Juliet enjoyed every moment of the journey, and would have been sorry when the crossing was over, if she had not been so eager to set foot upon her native soil. She leant upon the rail in the bows of the ship, watching the white cliffs grow taller and more distinct, and felt that now, indeed, she understood the emotions with which the heart of the exile is said to swell at the sight of his own land. She wondered if the sight of their country moved other passengers on the boat, as she herself was moved, and made timid advances to a lady who was standing near her, in her need for some companion with whom to share her feeling. "'Have you been away from England a long time?' she asked her. "'I have been abroad during a considerable period,' replied the person she addressed a stern-looking Scotchwoman, who did not appear anxious to enter into conversation. From her severe demeanor, Juliet imagined she might be a governess going for a holiday. "'You must be glad to be going home,' she ventured. "'It's a far cry north to my home,' said the Scotchwoman, thawing slightly. "'I'm fearing I will not be seeing it this summer. I'll be stopping in the south with some friends. The journey north is awful expensive.' "'I'm sorry you aren't going home,' Juliet sympathized. "'But it will be nice to see the English faces at Dover, won't it? "'There may even be a Scotsman among the porters, you know, by some chance.' "'No fear,' said her neighbour gloomily. "'They'll be local men, I have no doubt. "'Though whether they are English or Scots,' she added, "'I'll have to give them sixpence instead of a fifty-centime bit. 
which is one of the bonniest things you see on the continent, to my way of thinking. Juliet could get no enthusiasm out of her, and look which way she might, she could not see any reflection on the faces of those around her of the emotions which stirred in her own breast. It had been a rough crossing, in spite of the cloudless sky and broiling sunshine, and most of the passengers had been laid low by the rolling of the vessel. They displayed anxiety enough to reach land, but as far as she could see, what land it was they reached was a matter of indifference to them. No doubt, she thought, when the ship stopped and they felt better, they would be more disposed to a sentimentality like hers. She found her maid, who had been one of the most seasick of those aboard, and assisted her ashore, put her into a carriage, and ministered to her wants with the help of a tea-basket containing the delicious novelty of English bread and butter. In half an hour's time they were steaming hurriedly toward London. She was to lodge at a small hotel in German Street, and on that first evening even this seemed perfect to her. The badness of the cooking was a thing she refused to notice, and the astonishing hills and valleys of the bed caused in her no sensation beyond that of surprise. She was young, strong, and healthy, and there was no reason that trifling discomforts of this kind should affect her enjoyment. To the shortcomings of the bed, indeed, she shut her eyes in more senses than one, for she was asleep three minutes after her head touched the pillow, nor did she wake till her maid roused her the next morning. She got up at once and looked out of the window. It was a fine day again. Over the roofs of the houses opposite she could see a blue streak of sky. Already the air had lost the touch of freshness which comes even to London in August, during the first hours of the morning and the heat in the low-ceilinged room on the third floor, which Julie had occupied for the sake of economy, was oppressive in spite of the small sash windows being opened to their utmost capacity. But Juliet only laughed to herself with pleasure at the brilliance of the day. She felt that the weather was playing up to the occasion, as became this important morning of her life. For that it was important she did not doubt. She was going to hear tremendous news that day, make wonderful discoveries about her birth, hear undreamt of things. Of this she was absolutely convinced, and it would not have astonished her to find herself claimed as daughter by any of the reigning families of Europe. She was prepared for anything, or so she said to herself, however astounding. And that being so, she was excited in proportion. Anyone could have told her that by this attitude of mind toward the future, she was laying up for herself disappointment at the least, if not the bitterest of disillusions, but there was no one to throw cold water on her hopes, and she filled the air with castles of every style of architecture that her fancy suggested, without any hindrance from doubt or misgiving. She dressed quickly in the gayest humor, but with even more care than she usually bestowed upon her appearance, a subject to which she always gave the fullest attention. "'Which dress will Mademoiselle wear?' the maid asked her. "'Why, my prettiest, naturally,' she replied. "'What? The white one that Mademoiselle wore for the marriage of Monsieur her papa?' inquired Teresa. Scandalized at the idea of such a precious garment being put on before breakfast. "'That very one,' Juliet assured her, undaunted, and was arrayed in it, in spite of obvious disapproval. After breakfast they went out and inquiring their way to Bond Street, flattened their noses against the shop windows to their mutual satisfaction. 
They had it almost to themselves, for there were not many people left in that part of London, but more than one head was turned to gaze at the pretty girl in the garden-party dress who stood transfixed before shop after shop. This amusement lasted till half-past eleven, when they returned to the hotel for Juliet to give the final pats to her hair, and to retilt her hat to an angle possibly more becoming, before she started to keep her appointment with the solicitors. The next twenty minutes were spent in cross-examining the hotel porter as to the time it would take to drive to her destination, and having decided to start at ten minutes to twelve, in wondering whether the quarter of an hour which had still to elapse would ever come to an end. At three minutes to twelve she rang the bell of Messrs. Findlay and Ince. End of chapter two. Recording by Garth Comira.